Our Lord and our God, we recognize you as Lord of heaven and earth this morning, and also that you speak through your word, that you teach us about who you are, how we ought to respond, and your grace which gets us there. And we ask that today you would fill us with that truth, make it real to us as we consider it, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading an article uh, this week by a journalist called Stan Grant, and he was, I wrote a, a big article on Easter. And one of the things that he wrote in the article uh, was uh, about the crack in humanity that you see from time to time. And he was referring to the uh, well-known philosopher, Ukrainian philosopher actually, Miroslav Volf, uh, who has this uh, picture of a crack between humanity's sin and the worst of who we are and our will to be good. And there's a divide in the middle. There's a divide in the middle between how bad things can be, and you see that if you get on the news at any point in time recently, you know how bad humanity can be, and yet you know that there is a desire, a will that we will be good, and yet there's this crack in the middle. And sometimes it reveals that there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of humanity, as St. Augustine put it. There's something there that we've been trying to fill, but we can't quite fit it. There's a crack in humanity, and sometimes there's a bit of light poking through, almost as if when the tomb stone was rolled away from Jesus, that, uh, from Jesus' own tomb, and it was empty, there was uh, some light shining out of that tomb, that there's something different was happening. Now, ordinarily, there would be darkness inside a tomb, and yet, in this case, a great light has dawned upon humanity. And the fascinating thing about our text today we do see this crack in humanity because when people are struck by the reality that Jesus has actually risen from the dead, what are they? They're fearful. What do we see happening time and time again? People are trembling with fear. It says the, the guards who were guarding Jesus' tomb trembled like, and they fell down like dead men. An angel tells them not to be afraid, the women who are present, the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. The angel tells them not to be afraid. Jesus himself meets with the women and says, don't be afraid. For some reason, fear and resurrection sit together for us this morning. And so we're going to look at that. Firstly, we want, I want to share with you the fear of the guards. Why were they so fearful of an angel coming down in an empty tomb to show that Jesus was not there but alive. Secondly, I want to talk to you about the fear and the joy of the women. These were Jesus' followers who had not left his side even as he died on the cross, as we learned about on Friday. They stayed there. They followed his body to the tomb. They wanted to know what would happen to him. Somehow... Their souls were knit to his, though intellectually they did not understand what was going on. And Jesus shares with them something that puts great joy into their heart amidst the fear. And finally, I want to look with you, and thirdly, at the voice of Jesus that will free us from our fears. Okay? So number one, the fear of the guards. That's a fear of God when you're without him. Now, in our text, it's pretty clear that if, if an angel was to come down right now in this room, 
we'd all get pretty scared, wouldn't we? An angel was to turn up, like right here next to me, bright, an angel of the Lord. Sometimes we think of angels and little cherubs and they're sort of cuddly and you want to give them a pat or something. In the Bible, it's not like that at all. Angels are fearsome. That is, people are overcome and they fall down. They're terrified. They're shaking. They can't even move. That's the kind of angel we see revealing to them that Jesus has risen from the dead. There was a crack in the humanity of the guards. Roman soldiers, strong. Roman soldiers have weapons. Roman soldiers have armor. Roman soldiers are just guarding the tomb of a dead man, or so they think. And yet these Roman soldiers are overwhelmed with fear because the tomb is empty and Jesus is out. I was listening to a, an interview uh, with a guy called Tim Jarvis. Uh, he's um, sort of an Australian guy, lives in Australia at the moment, and uh, he is well known for being a follower in the footsteps of Shackleton, you know, the great explorer Shackleton. And so Tim Jarvis has spent about the last 15 years following in the footsteps of this great adventurer and going on expeditions to match his expeditions that he went on. Uh, Shackleton is well known for sort of hiking across the, uh, the Antarctic, uh, with, and this is in 1916, with you know, going, like, sailing there in a wooden boat and getting out in their sort of um, ancient-style uh, clothing, you know, which didn't really protect you from uh, the cold, and uh, just doing these amazing adventures. And so uh, this character, Tim Jarvis, has spent many years following the footsteps. And so he even decided that with a crew uh, back about 10 years ago, they would uh, reenact what Shackleton did in 1916. So they got all the old-style clothing, they made a special wooden boat, and they sailed 1,200 kilometres to Antarctica, and they set out on this expedition. And they said it was terribly hard. They were eating lard raw just to you know, get the, the calories into their body. Uh, yeah, crazy stuff. So... They, and, and one of the things that you find out about adventurers is they're a bit crazy. <laughs> They've got this kind of thing in their head where they want to push themselves literally up and to the point of death. And if they can overcome, go through these sort of death-defying experiences, then they'll finally have the feeling that they've always been looking for. And so the, the interviewer asked something really interesting uh, of Tim and she said, how do you cope with the feeling of anticipation beforehand and then the feeling afterward? And Tim Jarvis said, well, that's a really good question because uh, when we got to the end, it was almost like, oh. When we you know, followed in the footsteps of a great explorer and did something which people really haven't done for you know, over a century, and they got there, and they finished it, it was like, oh, is that it? It wasn't that satisfying. They were sort of on to planning the next thing or criticizing what they've done. It's like the greatest achievement that this adventurer had had in his life didn't add up to enough for him. And isn't that true for you and I? Have you had a great achievement that you've looked to, to get to in your life, and you've made it, and then it's over? It's over. 
and it's not quite good enough. It's not quite, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. There's a sense of disappointment. Elite athletes face this all the time. They get to the height of their career and then once they're finished, who am I? What does life mean to me? This, I tell you, is a crack in our reality. It tells us that humanity's greatest achievements will not satisfy us. It is a crack in humanity's heart that we're trying to fill our hearts with achievement and yet we put these things in and they don't give us that deep internal knowledge that all is right and good in the end. That is the crack in humanity that we experience and it is a way that God is breaking through into our reality. One of the fears uh, of these, uh, the fear of these guards when they realised that the tomb was empty and somehow Jesus was out, led them to orchestrate a cover-up. Notice that they didn't go to the, the sort of pagan governor of the land, Pilate, they actually went to the chief priests because they knew they could probably get some money out of them uh, to organise this cover-up and you know, say that Jesus' body was stolen or something and they were paid a sufficient sum, as in a bribe, uh, to keep their mouths shut about what really happened. Isn't it interesting that the religious people didn't want news of Jesus' resurrection getting out. Why is that? Why would the resurrection of Jesus bring fear, not just into the heart of a Roman soldier, but into the heart of a religious leader? What is going on here? Now, many of us today um, can be a little bit sceptical about Christianity, as uh, you see that those who were uh, the guards who are reporting things and the, the sort of fraudulent story that was derived, they're a bit sceptical about what was going on. And people today can be very sceptical about Christianity. But actually, we see in our text clues which point to the historicity, that is, the historical accuracy of what happened. And you know, the big question that humanity needs to ask is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did it happen? Because if this one thing happened, it changes absolutely everything. But we need to answer the question from, I guess, an historical point of view, did it really happen? What does our text tell us? Well, the text tells us that there were multiple eyewitnesses. Now, when ordinarily we look into history, we work out, are there eyewitnesses? Can other people verify? We have four Gospels here that record Jesus risen from the dead. We have different people within those Gospels, people whom those who had received the letters, because these were letters written to churches initially, people who received those letters could have gone and asked those witnesses. In uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, it tells us that up to 500 people saw the risen Jesus at one time. Up to 500 people. And those people were still alive so that those who received the letter to the church in Corinth, they could go and ask the witnesses. This shows us something that the Bible is bold enough to say in the first century, if you want to know if Jesus rose from the dead, it's a public thing, go and ask them. And these letters stayed in circulation. They weren't torn down to be fraudulent letters. They've stayed in circulation because people upheld them to be true. Not only that, and something that doesn't really stand out to us in the text, but it's a really important point, do you notice that the first witnesses and those that went out and proclaimed that Jesus was alive were women? They were women. Now, this only stands out if you're a first century person because no one in the first century would put the first witnesses of a great miracle as women. Why? 
because in the first century, in a patriarchal society, the testimony of women wasn't even counted in the court of law. That's what it was like. And so how could you rely on the testimony of women to prove that a great miracle had happened, that Jesus had risen from the dead? No one in their right mind would write that in unless it was absolutely true. And so we see there's historical evidence. Our best historians today cannot come up with good enough arguments to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Secular, you know, agnostic, atheists, they can't come up with good enough arguments to say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. All the evidence points to that he did. And so if you're a sceptical person this morning, the question that you have to wrestle with is, did it happen? Because if it did, it will utterly change your life and your reality. It will utterly change it. And we see that in our text a bit later on. Now there's a few implications uh, that our well, that resurrection gives us, I suppose. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, it means the end of religion for people who cling to it. Now, that's kind of an odd thing to say in church, isn't it? The end of religion, Jesus' resurrection means the end of religion. Let me explain. You see, religious people were the ones who were utterly opposed to Jesus. Even in his resurrection, they wanted to shut it down. They wanted to stamp it out. Religious people were terrified of what Jesus' movement meant. Why? Because religion says this, these are the things that you must do to be accepted by God. Go to church, give your money, participate in particular ceremonies and practices, do good works, earn your way so that God will accept you because you're a good enough person. That's the package of religion that we get in almost every culture and society on earth today. That's what they say. What does Jesus' resurrection from the dead say? I have done it. It is finished. Jesus rose from the dead not on the basis of your good works. He rose from the dead because he is God and death could not hold him. Jesus achieved something that our pile of ceremony and good works and doing the right religious things could never achieve. Jesus did it. And so the gospel tells us what God has done that we may be accepted. Religion tells us what you must do that you may be accepted. And so the resurrection truly is the end of religion as we know it. That's where the gospel breaks in to our lives. Another implication of Jesus' resurrection is that he is Lord of heaven and earth. No one else has risen from the dead. No one else has been publicly executed, verified by the professionals of the time, the Roman soldiers, put into a tomb and then come out, risen from the dead, having foretold that it would happen, witnessed by many. No one else has done that before. This shows us that Jesus truly is Lord of heaven and earth and every person on earth owes him our allegiance. Notice what Mary does when she sees Jesus in verse 9. She holds his feet and she worships him. Why? Because Jesus is God. The incredible thing that the Apostle Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians is that 
This resurrection of Jesus is the entire linchpin of Christianity. That is, if you pull it out, Christianity falls apart. The Apostle Paul says that if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, Christians are to be pitied above all people. Because that's the essence of what we believe, that Christ died for the forgiveness of sin, that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That Jesus is Lord of all. He has conquered death. If we don't have that, we're dead in our sins. The Apostle Paul is so bold to say that if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, you've got nothing. And yet if he has, you've got everything. No wonder people fell down in fear because the stakes are really high if it's true. You see, sometimes people are so eager to prove something wrong because they know that there's a crack in their reality. They've been trying to satisfy themselves with career, success, achievement. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been trying to satisfy yourself with relationships and it's just not quite fitting. It never has. As you get older, you keep trying. It never satisfies truly. It's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't fit. Well, I tell you today that if Jesus rose from the dead, he is the right fit. Because what you have experienced, that lack of satisfaction, is a crack in your reality. And the resurrected Lord of all can speak straight into your life and give you something that you've never had before and give it to you eternally. So that's where we've looked at the fear of the guards. Secondly, I want to look with you at the fear and joy of the women. The fear and joy of the women. We see this in verse 8. It says, after they've been spoken to by the angel, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. They ran. They ran because they were filled with joy. Felt like a bit of a party uh, here earlier on. I don't know, we should have been like cracking bottles of champagne or something during the service. Sorry, we, we won't do that. But it's exciting. Jesus is risen from the dead. It's okay for church to feel like a party. Why? Because it's so good. It is a happy day. If they're filled with great joy, why can't we be? We should be. We ought to be. Notice there's a contrast, though. On the one hand, people find out the tomb's empty and they fall down in fear like dead men. On the other hand, people who are filled with fear, they're also filled with joy. They come more alive when they hear the news that Jesus is not dead but alive. So the life of Jesus gives them more life. But to others, the life of Jesus almost brings death. There's a great contrast. There's a great separation between how people respond to Jesus. Why does the resurrection of Jesus give joy to some and fear to others? Let me explain with a little illustration. Imagine there's a woman who's a factory worker. She's in the lower socioeconomic end of society. She's got a job, but she doesn't like her job. She drudgingly does her work, you know, on a factory line, assembling different things day after day, week after week, year after year. She gets increasingly frustrated with her job because it's not a great workplace to be in. People fight and they gossip regularly. The pay is not that good. You know, she has minimum wage. It doesn't seem to go up that much. The hours are fairly long. It's tiring work. There's no prospect of going further up the career ladder. 
This woman begins to fear even going to work because she knows that every day a little part in her dies. Why is that? Why is that? In fact, she begins to dread going to work so much that it paralyzes her on a Sunday night because she is almost totally sure that her life has no prospect of being better. But in the end, if this is all that there is to life and all it amounts to, what's next must be worse. Imagine that feeling. Some of you know what that feeling is like. However, imagine another woman in the same factory, same conditions, people gossiping, poor pay, you know, things aren't that good. And yet, someone comes over to her and says, when you finish at the end of your career, I will give you $20 million. $20 million, just if you finish, if you get it done. If you get through, you will get $20 million. Just be given to you in a check. In fact, even better than that, it's been put in a trust account in her name so that it's ironclad. She will receive the money if she finishes her term in her job to retirement. How will she respond when she turns up to work each day? Well, she gets to work and she whistles. She hums to herself as she assembles things on the factory line. She jokes with those around her. She tries to make the best of the conditions that she in. She, she loves those that she cares about. Those same conditions don't fall hard on her shoulders. Those same conditions that the other woman handled with difficulty, she handles with ease. Why? Because she knows in the end it will all be worth it. And that's the truth of the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection, the reason why these women could have great joy that Jesus is alive. They went from fear and devastation that Jesus is dead to fear with great joy that led them to run, that was given them life. Why? Because they knew that in the end, their inheritance is greater than a mere $20 million. They have eternity with the Lord of heaven and earth and the greatest riches that we could not even imagine will be hers to share in. Her God-shaped hole was filled. So first we've seen the fear of the guards. Secondly, we've seen the fear and the joy of the women. And lastly, we see the voice of Jesus that frees our fears. Uh, again, in this article by Stan Grant that I was reading this week, uh, he quotes a woman uh, called... Called uh, a French philosopher. She died at 34, would you believe it? Her name is Simone Weil. And Simone Weil grew up in the early 1900s, was part of World War I, was a, a bit of an anarchist for a time and a dissident uh, when, during the German occupation, the Nazi occupation of France. And yet, somehow, during this time, she went through the you know, phases of atheism and Marxism, and then suddenly she was accosted by Christianity. It just came upon, uh, upon her path and she couldn't avoid it. These were her words. She said, and this is from the article um, by Stan Grant. It said, she wrote of the fissure, her tension with Christianity, the crack in her reality. She said she had not the slightest love of the church in the strict sense of the word. At its worst, she saw it as a tool for authoritarians. 
But this was not the spirit of the cross. Well, for many, Easter is a welcome break from the world, a quick trip away, and some chocolate eggs. For Christians, Easter, we remember Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. They felt powerfully the true faith. Faith, she says, is stronger than I was. And when she, during a liturgical service, this woman who had lived an amazing life had, had lived a terrible life. She wrote as though she felt the passion of Christ enter into her being once and for all. In a book that she wrote just before she died, she wrote this. In my arguments about the insolubility of the problem of God, I've never foreseen the possibility of that, of a real contact, person to person, here below, between a human being and God. She dismissed Christianity because she'd seen the worst of humanity and the church. She'd seen how bad people can be. She'd lived through the war to end all wars. And then another one came. She'd felt things that were so terrible. In her heart, she thought there was only darkness out there and nothing. And yet what happened? The God that she dismissed as out there, she didn't realize, was close at hand. And she met him in his word, like we are looking at today, and he invaded her heart. She had a face-to-face revelation of the Son of God through his word. But she never conceived that he cared about her and loved her that much. We see in our text that the angel who spoke to the woman was not enough, but Jesus himself now would speak to these women, the Marys. Jesus would speak from his mouth. They would hear his voice. They would see his person. He would contact them in a way that they would be forever changed by Well, let us look into what this really means. Firstly, it means these women were freed from their fear to experience the personal presence of Jesus. I want you to notice something really interesting in our text. When the women see Jesus, they're not angry with him. Jesus, why did you die? They're not upset. Jesus, we thought you had eternal life for us. They're not you know, frustrated. We thought we were part of a movement. You said that we will be part of the kingdom of God. What do they do? They fall at his feet and they grab at him. Why? Why do they do that? You know, religion can be a very transactional thing. You know, we give and then we get. You, know, you, you give your time, you get some sort of blessing. You give your money, you get some sort of blessing. You know, you confess your sins and you get something back for it. Absolution or whatever. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus changes people's hearts so that the greatest thing they get is Him. Notice the Marys. They didn't complain about what they'd lost. They just grabbed hold of him and they worshipped him. 
because they realized that his personal presence was the greatest thing in all the world. And so they were freed from their fears by the resurrection of Jesus to trust him and to love the one who poured his life out for them. But the way that Jesus frees our fears is he gives us a close relationship with himself that no other religion or spirituality structure affords. Do you know, in every, uh, every ancient culture, in every religion, in every ancient culture, uh, worship is to be mediated by something. So in many traditional cultures, you have these little gods uh, that you'll put in your household, but they'll represent bigger gods that are out in temples somewhere, but you'll need a, me- a mediator that is a little version to put in your house to make sacrifices to in order to get a blessing from it. And when you go to the temple, you can't actually get that close to the, the big sort of thing, you know, the big idol or whatever it is. You have to go through someone else. And even if you do somehow make your way to the, the big you know, golden statue, that's supposed to represent something else, isn't it? There's always some mediating thing. Even if it's a statue of gold, you're still trying to get there. You can't get close enough, can you? In every religion, it's the same. Even in Judaism. Judaism required a high priest to go on behalf of the people to visit the presence of God. And the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, where he was supposed to pay for the sins of the people through a sacrifice. Only once a year could it do it. And year after year, it had to be done because the people kept on sinning and the sacrifices couldn't take away sin. And yet, when Jesus died, there was a curtain in the tomb and it was torn from top to bottom. In the temple. Thank you, my boy. There was a curtain in the temple and it was torn from top to bottom. That's a good one. We'll remember that. And it was torn open. There was no longer necessity for someone to enter the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice. Because Jesus had made that sacrifice once and for all. What Jesus achieved there meant that the Marys could come to Jesus without need for a mediator and hold him by his feet and worship him closer than anyone else can get. That is the access that we have now to God in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection. Simone Weil talks about two things in her books. She talks about the idea of beauty and the idea of attention. She puts it this way about beauty. The beautiful is the experiential proof that the incarnation is possible. When we see beauty in the world in whatever way we observe it, it's a sign that God is out there because there's always something more beautiful to look at. And they found the feet of Jesus the most beautiful thing in the world when they realized it was the resurrected Lord. The other thing that Simone Weil described was attention. She puts it this way. Attention is the very substance of prayer. When one prays, one empties oneself, fixes one's whole gaze towards God and becomes ready to receive God. What do you give God when you pray to Him? You give Him your attention. 
That is the essence of worship. Why? Because he's worth it. Because he's the most utterly beautiful person because of all that he has given for us. There is no one like him. He is matchless in every way. And those women saw it and they grabbed hold of him and they worshipped him. The last freedom that Jesus gives us is the freedom to be his witnesses. Notice in verse 10 it says this, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the second time they've been told to go and tell others. Why? Because fear is the greatest inhibitor to Christians sharing their faith with other people. Fear. That's why it's here. Immediately after Jesus is risen from the dead, what is the thing that will get to your heart? Is fear that will stop you from sharing your faith. If you'd seen Jesus face to face, do you think fear could get into your heart? You betcha. I mean, if they crucified him, why wouldn't they crucify you? And yet Jesus, with his word, helps them overcome his fear. Why? What is it about what Jesus does for them that changes them from fearful people who won't share what's gone on, even though they have the best secret in the world, people who tell everyone about it? What goes on there? Because they realise that it was true. That crack in human reality that we experience in many and varied ways that crack in Simone Weil's reality where she thought, well, God's out there, and she tried to fill it with all sorts of different things, but she couldn't. But she never considered that God might be right up close in person with her. But it's when Jesus speaks, that's when her, their fears go. And so let me say to you really clearly this morning, if you want your fears to go, if you're a Christian person and you want to share, you need to hear Jesus speak to your heart through his word today. If you want to be a bold person who's humble, if you want to be a confident person who doesn't make too much of themselves, then you need Jesus to speak to you through his word today and he will free you from it. No matter what fear it is, as it turns out. Because these women should have been absolutely terrified and yet they ran with joy. Let us pray now to the God who frees us from our fears. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the beauty of the risen Jesus. May we too cling to his feet and worship him. May we fill our hearts with the truth that the tomb is open, that the veil in the temple is torn open. That access to you is made not through what we have done, but through what Jesus has done once for all. May we cling to this truth and believe it and take it on and live as though it's true all of our days unto glory. And we pray this now, giving you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.